G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann. And today I'm going through the age-old question, should you buy shares or property? Now, investors can get very solid and passionate about both these camps. You only need to see some of the forums and groups online to see just how much people believe in one or the other. But what's right for you and your stage of investing? Today, I'm really excited to have Stuart Wames of Pro Solution Private Clients come along and give us some of the pros and cons, benefits and negatives of each of these asset classes and how you can think about sequencing and timing them as you grow your wealth. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. I've been getting asked a lot in our Perth Property Investment Facebook group, should I invest in shares or should I invest in property and which one's better and you know, how do you decide? So I wanted to get someone along that is actually an independent financial advisor because, of course, if you go to the local real estate agent or your property manager and ask them, like I am, uh, I'm going to be heavily biased towards property. And, if, of course, if you go to most financial planners, they're not going to know much about property and going to be so into shares that you'd be lucky to even get to own your own family home with their advice (laughs) that they give you. So today we've got Stuart Wames from Pro Solutions along, and I'm very excited to be chatting about the pros and cons of each. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Hey, Jared. Good to be back with you. So take us through some of this historical performance of each asset type because it's good to look backwards. And I know you're very evidence-based with your advice, which is why I align with it so much. Yeah, and, and look, I try and not flog a dead horse, but even before we get into returns, I mean, in your introduction, you make a really good point. You know, if I'm going to go off and get advice from a financial advisor, of course, of course, I want that advice to be in my best interest, but it, it's really important then to consider the advisor's experience uh, and scope of knowledge. Because really, if they feel very comfortable with shares and that's kind of in their wheelhouse and they've got some sort of ancillary sort of knowledge of property, then as a general tendency, they're going to go with something they're more comfortable with. And so I don't believe everyone should invest in property. And I don't believe everyone should invest in shares. In fact, I believe that a combination probably suits most people. Mm-hmm. But also, if I meet a client and they say to me, Stuart, I hate property or I hate shares, either or is fine with me. I, both asset classes have their merits, which we'll talk about. And you can typically build assets with both classes, uh, both, we'll build wealth with both classes as well. But it's really important if you do go out and get advice, you know, how much experience do they have in that, those two main growth asset classes, property and shares? And I find, and I think this is the biggest indictment, you know, the financial planning industry has cleaned itself up a lot. No more commissions. There's, there's fewer conflicts uh, now, not none, but fewer. But the big, the big, the remaining big problem is making sure that advisors have just as deep knowledge and experience in property as they do shares. And unfortunately, mm. that's not the case today. But I imagine, you know, I hope 
that the industry sort of evolves and upskills in that in that area. Anyway, putting that aside, uh, the answer is when you look at sort of long term returns, the answer is they're both great, and they've both got a strong history over long periods of time of generating relatively similar returns. So you look at the Australian share market. Uh, since the ASX 200 index began in 92, has returned at 9.1% per annum. Uh, the US market uh, since 88, that's when the S&P 500 began, at 10.6. So, you know, th- there's not too much uh, difference between that. If you look at the average capital growth rate, Melbourne, Sydney, you could even throw Perth, you know, really any of the capital cities, it's circa 7.5%. And then if you add, you know, rental yield on top of that, I mean, it's depend on the asset that you have, but even net of expenses for most properties, it's going to be two and a half ish percent. So it's really seven and a half growth plus two and a half income gets us to about 10%. So when you look at, you know, whether it's the international share market, the Australian share market, the US or Australian property, we can pretty much confidently say, over you know a four decade period, the returns have been broadly similar, around about ten percent. And so the answer is, or what I would say to people is, well, if you can earn ten percent per annum over a long period of time, you don't actually need to do much more than that in order to, for most people, in order to build substantial wealth. You know, if you can, m- most investors would be very happy with that. You know, ten percent return means your asset base is more than doubling every ten years. I mean that's a that's an excellent outcome. Now, of course, these are, are longer term returns, and so over over very long periods of time, when we compare asset classes, they look very similar. But what's hidden in those returns is volatility, and of course, that's one of the main, I, I guess, observations that people have or concerns, if you like, about investing in shares is the volatility rate is around about twenty ish percent. Whereas the volatility of rate of Australian property is about 10%. So it's half as volatile as shares. And that kind of makes sense to everyone. Property mm. feels a bit safer because the, the value doesn't change very much. Shares feel risky because, you know, it's up 3% one day and down 2% the mm. next. But I would say to people when making investment decisions, volatility really doesn't matter. Like it's end to end. If I invest in an asset and I'm going to hold that asset for 20 or 30 years, do I really care how Mm. often the price changes? I only really care what is that asset going to be worth in 20 to 30 years from now. So look, I acknowledge the volatility argument around the two asset classes. And certainly if you're really petrified of volatility, then maybe steer away from higher volatile asset classes. But I I think that's more of an education piece for for people and investment decision-making rather than um, rather than something fundamental that should impact their uh, investment decisions. And I guess it comes back to people's timeframes. And I'd argue that if you're not looking long-term, you probably shouldn't be getting into any asset class. And so it takes it more from the investing space into the, you know, trying to produce an income or uh, having a job or, or potentially even gambling at the far end of that spectrum, wouldn't you say? I, I mean, I think short-term um, short-termism encourages us to be speculators rather than investors, mm-hmm. and also uh, having too short-term focus really invites you to make mistakes. 
Because what it does do is it really encourages you to listen to the noise that's going on in markets at the moment. Mm, so if we think about the noise at the moment, it's all about interest rates and property prices potentially falling 15, 25%. More it's on your US. side of the country, Stuart. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Little better yeah. over here in Perth. But... Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, or um, US of noise. Re- recession, there's lots of noise, right? But none of those things, if we ask ourselves, Will any of these things matter in 20 years' time? You know, will, will they really matter to us or, or to really markets mm. and returns? The answer is no, of course. So by focusing too short a term, it does invite us to get influenced by those things and and as a result, we'll end up making uh, probably not a, a sound fundamental decision. Mm. And the other thing I found really interesting is when you're looking at that around about 10% return from each asset class, it, it's interesting here when I look within the property asset class too, because you mentioned some of the typical growth rates at seven and a half percent and yields at two and a half. And what I find as well is that if you go towards the other end of the spectrum and you're getting a six percent yield, you know, you're going to expect more of a four percent capital growth rate. And no matter what you do, you tend to not be able to escape this ten percent overall return. So it's interesting to be able to consciously choose where do I want my return to come from, more from the, the growth side or more from the income side. And, and that's why it can really help to have a clear plan and, and know which phase you're at in growing your wealth. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's, I mean, it's a little bit like you know, developing an asset allocation, which is really um, in simple terms, you know, how do I spread my assets across mm property or shares or other asset classes it's a little bit like you know playing golf and deciding which club will you use for which shot oh, yeah. um, it's not that you can play golf with one club or well, you probably can but it's not going to really work out <laughs> so well for you and it's the same with investing if you try and build wealth just with one asset class look if you do i'm a great putter Stuart, and yeah. sometimes i think you know the way that my drives go to the next hole i might be better just putting it down the, the hole <laughs> well of course there's exceptions that prove every rule but, <laughs> but if i learned a few more skills or got some advice from someone that did know how to drive then i might be far better involving that in my game is yeah probably yeah, a, yeah spot on but you good, know the the, the benefit is that you can choose different asset classes and they're going to do different things much mm. like golf clubs do different things and, and so you're right i mean even if you look at the um uh, even if you look at share markets like the australian share market is quite a high income market it's just because we have what's called dividend imp- imputation which means you get tax credits for, for for whatever tax the corporate has paid before they pay you a dividend um and also for, for whatever reason australian companies have a greater culture of paying out dividends, whereas uh, around the world, really, there's a seems to be a much larger focus on reinvesting that income to grow the business. Hmm. CSL is probably the only exception or the major exception in the Australian market to that, and they've done a, a fantastic job. So, um, but if you have a look at the Australian market, returns about ten percent, but the yield has always been about four and a half percent. So you've got four and a half percent income, five and a half percent growth. But if you look to the US market, again, still 10%, but its yields around 2%. But, you know, so there is, there is a, a perfect balance in markets and it's observable in capital cities longer term around Australia as well. 
And Perth's always been a slightly higher yielding market, but also a slightly lower growth market. But if you compare that to Sydney, it's a lower yielding market and a higher growth market. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a negative growth market at the moment, unfortunately, but, um, uh, but you're right. The market is, is, um, very efficient. And Mm. so if you're going to get a high yield, you can't, at least over long term, expect uh, also a high level of capital growth. And I guess with property, we have to look at what we're left with as well, because it's one thing to to get a rental yield of a certain percent, but once we take out other costs, what are we typically left with? Well, I mean, it depends on the the asset, but you know, you could easily pay a percent in terms of yield out in costs. So, um, yep. you know, if you're renting a house in uh, Melbourne or Sydney, you know, you're kind of lucky to get two percent. You can talk to the yields much better than I in in Perth, mm. but if you're getting two percent, you're paying at least a percent in in fees, and so you're walking away with a percent in terms of income return. Look, property is never, in my view, a good quality, high growth investment grade property is never going to be an a, a income asset. And this is to my point around choosing the right club for the right shot. The the reason that you would invest in investment grade property is purely to build your net wealth. It's purely an asset play rather than an income play. And that works perfectly well, particularly for people that do need to build their asset base. So I would argue that you typically build wealth in kind of two steps. The first step is build your asset base. And then the second step is then start tilting towards income. Hmm. Whereas the mistake that some people make is they think, okay, I'm going out to work and Every morning, I get out, get out of bed to go to work to generate an income. And what I want to do is replace that income, so I don't have to get out of bed in the morning to do that. And so they naturally think, well, I need investments that are going to give me income. The problem with that is, if I go and get investments that are giving me income, I'm going to have to pay more and more tax, particularly as I'm working. Whereas if you have a really strong net asset position, there's always going to be a way to eventually tilt that towards income or develop a retirement strategy. Like if someone walks in my office with no income but three, but $5 million of net worth, well, there's always going to be a solution for them how they're going to fund retirement or the rest of their, their, their life. But if they've got half a million dollars net worth, well, there's not much. It's going to, they're going to run out of money one day. So if you are in the position where you're sort of just starting out or you're younger or you're further away from retirement, then for most people in that category, Building wealth, building net asset value is the key. And so the best way to do that is find an asset that gives you as little income as possible in return for much higher capital growth. Mm. And and property is certainly uh, really the best asset that allows us to do that. So what are some of the benefits of each of these asset types that lean into that primary focus of building your asset base? So the benefit, the major benefit of property, I mean, if we compare property and shares, and it is a bit of a silly comparison, really. I mean, I, I keep laboring the golf club analogy, but it, it's silly yeah. to sit there and compare shares and property because they're both great assets, but they exactly. have their pros and cons. And at a portfolio level, if you invest in both, mm. hopefully and if you get you- more educated. I, I used to think when I was starting out that, you know, it is one or the other. You see everyone debating it so intensely, you know, and they're so vested in that vehicle rather than what's the actual goal they're trying to get to. 
Yeah, and normally it's a buyer's agent debating a stockbroker. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course they're gonna they're gonna debate. Their worldview is that you know one asset class is better than the other. So, um, I mean, the first the first thing the first big observation, which is really important, is gearing, is borrowing to invest. Now, most people wouldn't feel comfortable, and rightly so, going out and borrowing a million dollars and dumping it in the stock market tomorrow. Just by the mere fact that stocks have twice the volatility of shares makes that a lot more risky prospect. And notwithstanding, you know, most banks are going to say, forget about it, we're not interested mm-hmm. in doing that, unless you're going to contribute 30 or 40% of the funds, you know, we're not willing to lend, and, and which is called margin lending, which used to be very popular up until the before the GFC and now not so popular. But with property, it's different. It's got a lower volatility rate, which means our entry point is less of a concern. You know, even if you bought last year, okay, property prices have come off a little bit since then. But again, if you're going to hold for 20 years, it's not that big a deal. Whereas with the share market, you could invest today and it drops 30% over the next month. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's not a good starting point. Uh, I also so, have a bit of a, don't, isn't there such thing as a margin call with shares? So, yep. At least with property, the bank isn't going to typically, you know, put the the valuer back out to to see what your property's worth, and they often really don't want to know as long as the interest is getting paid and and everything's fine and hunky dory, and you're not going back to refinance or anything, then they don't need to look at it. But what happens on the share side? Because I'm not as familiar with that. No, that's right. If your LVR. If you're if you breach the LVR limits because the market has dropped, absolutely you'll get a margin call and you'll have 24 hours to pay down the loan back down to 70 or 60 percent, whatever it was going to be. So it's a big problem, and it's what it's exactly what um, exacerbated the GFC margin calls did. And they and the market, I out. guess, knows the price at every point because shares you can look up that price every every day, whereas a property price is not always known or exact either no but you're right that um really unless you default on the mortgage contract the bank doesn't have a margin call facility so even if they revalue your property and you're in a negative equity position there's not much they can do about that situation as long as you haven't defaulted on the loan agreement so as long they're in the business of lending money and charging interest they're not in the business selling property so therefore, that's the biggest advantage, I think, is that you can invest in property without needing to contribute a large amount of your own cash, or maybe if you've got equity in other property, none of your own cash. Now, of course, you've got to then um, fund the holding costs. You know, There's always mm. going to be a shortfall between the net rental income and the interest costs alone. So that's your contribution to, towards the investment, but at least you don't have to make that upfront contribution. Whereas with shares... You know, most people don't feel that comfortable gearing into shares. So normally it's going to be an ungeared investment, which means that you need to invest incrementally over time. And of course, mathematically, investing a million dollars today in one lump sum is going to be better than investing a million dollars over the next 10 years each month. Mm. Yeah. 10, 10 million in total over, <laughs> over 120 months. And so mathematically, you know, that that's what makes property more attractive. It's not because property is a better asset class than um, than shares. It's just it's uh, a more comfortable asset class with gearing and, and gearing is a really important consideration mm. um, because that can, can change the outcomes. So before we jumped on the podcast, you mentioned just how critical gearing was and I want to probe a little deeper as to how that 
affects the returns. Did you have any kind of example to show, you know, what is the return it could end up like once you take into account, you know, property's got a lot of other negatives and costs associated with it too, but it'd be good to see what someone uh, is left with as a return. Yeah, of course. Now, of course, you know, when you think about property and sometimes people are attracted to property from because of the tax benefits, negative gearing and so forth, but which is great, which is a nice incentive. But if it's a capital growth asset, which is what I suggest it should be, it means you'll end up paying a lot of capital gains tax one day too, if and when you, if and when you sell the property. So the government's not stupid. And when you look at the negative gearing tax revenue that they're foregoing, and you compare that to the CGT tax revenue that the ATO generates each year, they're, they're, they're wildly different amounts. So the, okay. the, the ATO is just as much as a property investor for growth as just as you and I are. Uh, obviously, there's entry and ex- exit costs as well with property, you know, stamp duties, buyer's agent fees, and then when you go and sell the property in an agent and so forth. Um, there's maintenance along the way that you need to do. So, you know, how do you balance all these things up? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I did a, a financial analysis of assuming that someone buys a property for a million dollars, borrows the full cost, contributes the negative cash flow, the holding costs for that property uh, for a period of time, but then sells the property in 25 years, pays the capital gains tax, repays the loan, et cetera. And what I, I used a calculation called internal rate of return, mm-hmm. which really calculates what is the total return from the cash that I've contributed the towards this investment? Yeah. yeah, which is your annual holding costs. And it's about 14%, 13.96 or something. So 14%. And what growth uh, rate did you use for just on the property price? So 7, 7% growth, capital okay. growth, 3% income yield. Yep. yep. And 6% uh, interest rate. Uh, Now, if you take the gearing out of that, so if you said, okay, the investor didn't borrow, but they actually contributed their own cash towards that investment, the return drops to um, 7.3%. And the difference is that you had to put all this money in up front. And so it's more of a costly investment because you've contributed uh, a lot more. Mm. So about double the return then. Yeah, that's right. So it shows that property... As an asset class, it's a good investment. It's not a bad investment. But property, because property with gearing, those two together, it's the gearing that does most of that heavy lifting. And that's an important distinction because sometimes people feel like, is it a property versus shares decision? But really, ultimately, it's a, should I borrow to invest decision? Mm. And that's going to depend on you know your financial position, your income, what other assets you currently have, et cetera. Lots of considerations. And if it's no, then maybe it's shares. If it's yes, I should borrow to invest, then property is the natural choice uh, to invest in. Mm. And the one thing your example doesn't take into account is if you went and dumped the million dollars cash into buying the property without a loan, that's going to mean that you may just have that one asset. So if you assumed you had the million dollars and you went and bought five properties at 200k or four properties at 250k including expenses you're controlling four times the asset base as the million dollars and you're getting double the return so i don't know how to work that out quickly but if you got four times the asset base and double the return it's like i don't know that's compounding 
to the nth degree of like uh, it should be a simple calculation for someone that did high level maths at university <laughs> engineering level um i mean of course it's obvious and it was just, just a, a, i mean you had a million dollars exactly you know, you'd probably do a combination of both you know use some to put into an offset account to mitigate some of the gearing and then maybe some into shares and whatever so mm. it was a pure uh, purely theoretical a decision but gearing has a big impact and and um and often we you know sit there espousing the benefits of property investing but what we really should be doing is espousing the benefits of gearing yeah, how good is gearing and, pro- and yeah. property is just a means to an end i mean um, michael yardney who we both know has often said property is just a game of finance with a property investing is a game of finance with a few properties just thrown in the middle mm. you know he's always identified that it's really just a game of finance more yeah. so than a game of investing in property which which by the way i shouldn't uh, ever dilute the importance of buying the right asset um mm. it's not just but it's the yeah. thing the gearing element if you get the right asset that's going to magnify the returns mm. so what's some of the other positives of each asset class just to round things out because shares shouldn't be left without giving some uh you know some positives too there's i mean there's some fantastic positives uh with shares and the biggest one is liquidity um and the fact that you can buy them in installments with smaller amounts Mm. and you can sell them in installments as well which which in my you know from a a a practical financial planning perspective is incredibly attractive so for example if a client built up a share portfolio and they get to mid 50s and think you know what I only want to work three days a week or two days a week. Now they might that income that they earn for two or three days a week still might not be enough to pay for living expenses. But if they've accumulated a share portfolio on the side, not only is it going to give them a predictable level of income, but also they could sell twenty thousand dollars of shares each year for the next five years mm. until they're sixty and they can get their super. Yeah, you can't That's do that the with part property. That I never got like just how flexible that selling of the asset in small parts really allows so much greater versatility in that retirement phase or whenever you want to draw income and drawing income doesn't have to be purely from the income of the shares it can be through selling and of course when you sell a share and you've does the same apply if you've held it more than a year you you pay the 50 percent capital gains tax um yeah and within a portfolio you know you you might have a a portion of shares a portion of um listed property Mm. portion of equities you know you don't have to and then you can choose which one to sell that's going to be most attack tax effective in a particular year so it really does give you that flexibility whereas property what it's it's greatest positive which is the compounding capital growth which generates a lot of wealth over time particularly the, the longer the period you own it is also a bit of a negative too when you get into retirement because it is a liquid and it's not throwing off very much income. So you could end up being really asset rich and income poor, which is not really the position to be in. Only solution to that is go and sell a property. But then if you go and sell one big, large, lumpy mm-hmm. asset, you end up paying a lot of tax. So it is a good, so yeah, I think that's a symptom, a symptom of poor planning or, or no long-term planning. You know, hopefully, you know, we can't take the money with us. We'll have to sell some of these assets or gift them uh, at some point. Uh, and paying a lot of capital gains tax, in a way, is good because it means you've made a really large capital gain. But to try and avoid paying uh, or at least delaying 
paying tax as long as possible. Uh, if you have a complementary asset class, it allows you to sort of do that. Mm. Um, and then the the other um, advantages of shares is really just the costs and potential hassle associated with it. So, yeah. you know, with shares, it is very much kind of set and forget, particularly if you have an advisor looking after the portfolio. You know, you're not going to have to deal with any tenant problems, property maintenance uh, issues. Um, there's no entry and exit costs, like in terms of, you know, there's some uh, maybe some broker commissions and whatever when you buy the ETF or whatever the share is, but they're negligible, you know, nothing like stamp duty and land tax and all these sorts of things. So there's some real uh, added advantages as well. But I think the incremental investing and incremental divesting of shares is is really the biggest uh, advantage it plays in a in a mm. portfolio. Yeah, and I never considered just the tax implication because you can't, you know, go and carve off and unless your property is subdividable and sell little parts of your property and spread that out over different financial years to minimise its taxes, you sell too. So that's why, yeah, when you're just looking at overall, you know, top level returns, it doesn't take into account um, what you're left with in your pocket after you pay your taxes. So. Yeah, and uh, to even to navigate a sale, you know, in the share market, that can be a little bit easier to do. You don't know what the share market will do over the next two or three, four, five months, whatever, but you might be able to sort of just incrementally, progressively sell down. Whereas with property, and particularly if you don't want to be a price taker, you know, if you want to maximize your your exit value, it is really dependent on what the market is doing, you know. So even I, I know with some clients in situations, our goal might have been let's try and sign the contract of sale this financial year. But in in one way, it really is dictated by the market because you put the property on the market. Maybe someone comes along on 1 July, a day too late, <laughs> you know, to, that's willing to buy the property. So um, that liquid market uh, for shares can be, can be a real added advantage. Hmm. So is there any ways to actually reduce the risks and increase the potential for consistent returns? Well, there's, lo- there's lots of ways to, to reduce investing risk. And I, I would say uh, risk is really just doing the wrong thing, of course, or making a mistake. And I don't think there's any mistakes that you can make that are a result of of just random bad luck. You know, in life, things can happen and sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But with investing, I think every potential mistake or, or, or actual mistake, if you've made them in the past, as a result of doing something fundamentally wrong. Hmm. And that, that's kind of easy to say. but the, It is the easy to then, say, especially when pretty much everyone that's an investor has made mistakes at some point when they look back and it's easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, it is, but that one's a big proponent of, of evidence-based investing exactly, because that's yeah. the only question you need to ask yourself is, okay, but if I do this, where's the evidence it's going to work? Yeah. Like, It I, is I so go simple when you actually truly understand how to invest with evidence. Yeah. It cuts a lot of the noise out, a lot of the speculation. It's like we're not looking at hot spots or hot tips. We're going on what we can prove and, you know, it's far better than throwing a dart at a board. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, you don't need to throw a dart at a board. That's the an- that's the really answer. I mean, if you can achieve a 7 to 10% return over the long run, that's all most people need to, to build way more wealth than they'll ever need. So if that's all you need, that's what you should aim at. Hopefully you maximise returns and get the 14% that I talked about 
by gearing into into property, but it's not about chasing those returns. It's just about doing something where the evidence shows that if you take these steps, you know, that you will generate a return that you're hoping to to achieve. So that's the way to reduce uh, or minimize mistakes. Now the the easy one is, you know, get advice. Um, that's kind of the overarching from someone that you trust that someone's in, that someone is also independent. Because really, I mean, I've been in my business for 20 years. I haven't seen it all, but I've seen a lot. And I've seen a lot of different people in different situations doing different things. And I've learned from all those experience and, and observations. So if a client comes to me, they get that as 20 years of experience. I think knowledge is really valuable, but experience is, it tells us how to apply that knowledge. And that's the critical element to avoid um, mistakes. Mm. So you don't need to go and find someone else, of course, but you're probably going to learn a little bit by trial and error. But really, I, I would keep asking myself, where's the evidence that this is going to work? And, and I think um, everything in investing in finance isn't or shouldn't be that complex that it can't be explained simply. And a lot of it is just basic logic or basic maths. Even the stuff that we've talked about today around gearing and property and shares and whatever, it's just basic maths, you know, income and capital growth and Incomes tax differently to capital growth. It makes sense. Hmm. Exactly. Is there anything that we can do? You said just don't try to push things or chase shiny objects or if you can just get the 7 to 10% return. Is there any sort of questions we can ask ourselves to steer us towards a better choice? I think um, people that can be really focused on returns can end up making mistakes. You know, the mm. first thing I ask myself when contemplating an investment myself is what is the risk? What's the downside? Yeah. Think risk first and then think return second. Whereas I think uh, a lot of people, particularly inexperienced investors, think return first and maybe not yeah. even consider risk. Uh, and I think Bitcoin's probably an awesome well, example of that. Anytime I've actually lost money is where I've the return has been far in excess of what you know is normal and I didn't appreciate or downplayed the risk associated. Yeah. Thankfully, none of those uh, have occurred any time in the last 10 years, but um, some big learning lessons in the early days. <laughs> so, I mean, if you take my example of the property and the internal rate of return, holding that property for mm. 25 years being 14%, normally, I mean, theoretically, if you want a higher return, you have to accept higher risk. Return, return is merely a compensation for risk. And that means, you know, for example, if you go and get a term deposit, you'll get 4 or 5%. There's no risk. But if you want to put all your money in venture capital or something, you might, you might earn 30%, but it could be zero. And that's, that's the risk that you're taking. And so what investors need to do is, is ask themselves, how do I get the highest return for the absolute lowest risk? An even better question might be, how do I get the highest return for no risk? And so if I use the property example, as I just referenced, the 14% internal rate of return, 14% is a really sizable return. Like normally a 14% return would be, this is quite a risky investment. But actually, if what I'm doing is investing in a blue chip area that's had 40 years of 50 years of strong capital growth over that period of time, and I'm buying an asset that's you know, fundamentally mostly land value because obviously land appreciates, buildings don't. And that asset has runs on the board in terms of returns. What is, and I'm going to hold that that investment for 25 years, 
what is my risk? My risk is relatively low. Like I can see the asset. I know the things that drive property values tend to be static and factual, which means I, factual means I can verify them. You know, I know this street and, and there's these amenities in the area and the school and hospital. They're not going to change or almost never change. Um, and they're the things that are contributed to the capital, capital growth rate. So in that situation, I would argue we've got quite a low risk investment here. And the only risk part of the investment might be servicing the borrowings over time. You know, if there's a change in my personal circumstances, which I can self-assess, might be low risk, might be high risk, depends on the my situation. So I've got a relatively low risk investment that's given me a 14% return on average compounding over a 25-year period. I think I've then turned the risk return equation on my head. Mm. So that's why I think thinking about risk first and then return will really help people focus on the fundamentals in the investment rather than getting dazzled by the return. Good one. So I guess why should we consider having both in our portfolio? Because you've touched on a few times that there should be a, a mix. And yep. we've spoken about some of the positives and negatives of each and how to bring this all together for us. So I think as a as a general sort of life cycle of an investor, you know, someone comes out of university or school or whatever and gets a job, they pretty much have no assets to their name and they've got to start building an asset base. And the other end of the spectrum is we get to 60 or whatever age we are, we decide to stop working and we need our assets to be able to fund our retirement, assuming we're not going to be relying on the age pension or the government to decide how much to pay us. Really, I've got to um, go from A to B, as I said previously, in two steps. The first step is really do whatever I can so that in 10, 20 years, I'll have a lot more assets to my name. It's all about build my net worth. Don't worry about income. And then once I've got a strong net worth, then I want to start tilting more towards income to complement the, the amount of capital growth and income and hopefully get to a point by the time I'm retired, I'm getting a healthy level of income and also a healthy level of capital growth. And that way, mathematically, if I spend the income, I've still got the growth ticking mm. away, But and then mathematically I can live forever. I can afford yeah. to live forever, ever. But well, the income... The technology is going. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. living to 120, 150, and you don't really want to spend all of your uh, asset base and live in, have to live another 40 years on the pension, and pension may not exist by then. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And you, know, you just never know what's around the corner. You've... At least if you've got a strong asset base, you can help out children, grandchildren, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, but you need that income to be substantial enough to actually really pay for your living expenses. So, you, so it's just you need something other than property or in addition to property. So what I would typically say to people as a general rule of thumb is get the gearing in place first. We, we just talked about how powerful gearing is and how necessary it is to build your asset base. But everyone has a limit to their borrowing capacity, either imposed by their circumstances, their risk profile, or the banks. But we've all got a limit. And and fair enough to you. I mean, there's a point where overborrowing can be risky as well and actually puts you further away from retirement rather than closer to mm. it. So you work out what is that borrowing? Maybe it's a couple of properties, who knows? Get them done first. And then once you're on top of your debt and your cash flow position and so forth, that's when you start investing in other assets, such as shares that are more liquid. And then by the time you get into your 50s, hopefully you've got a really strong capital growth engine, which is your property, which is really building your net worth. 
And then you've complemented that with some shares and equities that are going to throw off a little bit more income and give you some liquidity to access some of that, some of those returns and investments in the future. And so by using a combination of assets at different times in your sort of investment life cycle, uh, the aim is that by the time you get to retirement, you've got a nice balance of those assets. And that at a portfolio level, what you'd end up doing is balance, balancing out the pros and cons. The property will add the capital growth and will underpin your asset base in case you do live too long. <laughs> and the, the equities and super will provide most of the income and really fund, at least at the first phase of your retirement, which could be the first 30 years, and by which time the properties would have really kicked on in terms of value mm. and you'll have more money yeah. than you'll ever need. Um, exactly like if property doubles every 10 plus years, you know, yep. by the time. It's just astronomical when you extrapolate it out, isn't it? Like it's not that exciting what it may do in 10 years, but when you start looking at 30, 40, 50 years, so wow, it's like you can't even imagine it. My wife and I were talking about um, a commercial property that's for sale and the vendors want more than $3 million and she was contemplating buying that commercial property about 20, 25 years ago, it's in Richmond in, in Melbourne, for about 600000 and and the problem is the problem is that we as human beings find it really di- find those numbers really difficult. Like if we if she had a thought even uh, with a you know with a high level of confidence twenty five years ago it'd be selling for more than three million dollars. Well, of course it's a no you'd buy you'd buy it every day of the week and you'd be happy to pay uh, five fifty. Mm. Well, imagine what you'd do and the motivation you'd have to make that happen. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah, you do you do do anything to make it happen. But the problem is, you look at that now, we, we were talking about it because we think you'd only pay up to three for the property and they want more than three. And that's mm. what the conversation was about. But we have problems just getting our head around the numbers. What will that property be worth in another 20 years? Will it be 10, 15? I don't know. Like, I, don't, I don't know. But, but it's um, always along the road. People have had problems. Uh, Clients have had problems with understanding that properties will be worth two, three, four, five million dollars in twenty years from now. It's it is inconceivable. It's hard to conceive today, uh, and that's that's always the challenge. Now, not all property, of course. It's got to be well located. You know, it's got to have the fundamentals to drive that level of growth over time, of course. But the right assets will. And um, I think you know, I said to her, imagine if we had a time machine and we could go back and buy these properties but you know we kind of had the opportunity today and uh, let's just hope in 20 years time we won't be regretting not taking action today well that's it and the further you get into this you realize that if you're taking action and letting time compound then you're going to be far far better off than those that don't so well, time's a, time is a really big ingredient I, I mean warren buffett has a saying that you can't get you can't make a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. You know, some things, some things just take time. And it's true. Like if you, if you buy a really good quality asset and hold it for many decades, you'll make a, a lot of money. There's just no doubt. I mean, it's, it is actually that simple. It's simple, but not easy. You know, to, to hold it through the times to not, I, was, I was answered an email uh, from a client today about he bought an apartment, the apartment hasn't done well, it's a great apartment, but just hasn't performed yet. You know, and, and so part of my job is to make sure my clients don't make mistakes. So definitely don't sell that asset. 
it will perform. You just need to have the patience. So it, it it's it is it is difficult at time, particularly when it's your own money and you're sort of emotionally invested and so forth. Excuse the pun, but really it is. It's it's a, it's a lot about discipline, and quite often with investing, the right thing is to do nothing. <laughs> Uh, if, if you've got the right investments, of yes. course, you've got to do something if you don't. But yeah. No, thanks so much for spending the time today to run through the different asset classes and the pros and cons. And hopefully that's going to really give people a clearer way forward because it's just hard to get anyone to look at these things unbiasedly. And if people do want to chat to you about your financial planning and your holistic approach um we'll put the details for pro solution private clients in the show notes and definitely worth getting in touch if you've got your podcast and book as well as great starting points don't you yeah definitely i just google investopoly which is my uh, weekly podcast and it'll give uh, people i think a flavor for you know what we think about what we talk about so it's always a good introduction but it's it's been wonderful jared i enjoy talking about these things (laughs) so uh it's more of a pastime for me than a job appreciate it thanks to it Take care. Just a reminder that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburbs of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorsedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group to be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions, and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group.